Assalamu alaikum. Can you hear me? Um, I'm trying to. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, okay, very good. All right, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu nusalli ala Rasulihil Kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala, and we see blessings upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Alrighty, <clears throat> let's get into the overview now of the material we've been looking at uh, with focus on what do these passages say to us about Allah Ta'ala. And, and we said that that is essentially the core of, of the Islamic worldview. And so, sharing, sharing. All right, hopefully you can all see this. So this was the previous subsection. This is Allah Ta'ala speaking, uh, giving us the origins story. And one part that I left out when we were looking at the story of the children of Israel is that if we look at Ayahs 30 to 39, not only as the ending of the previous section, but also the transition into the next section, because this is where history starts beginning. So it's sort of like the uh, this first course uh, overlaps with the, the, the second course that, that we're not completing, mashallah, inshallah. And so, uh, of course, we've spoken about Allah Ta'ala. A central theme in this whole subsection is that Allah Ta'ala knows all. He is a source of guidance. Do not reject his guidance, so forth and so on. So now, getting into Ayah 40, what is being said about Allah Ta'ala? Number one, <laughs> that he is addressing people directly and he is a provider of favors, and he makes pacts with us. Again, a lot of what we're covering is going to seem absolutely basic, but this is foundational, that Allah Ta'ala uh, also will make pacts with people. In the case of the children of Israel, they are recognizing the pact being completed, being uh, 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 confirmed. Uh, you and I would not have that, that privilege of experience in this life that, okay, I make a promise with Allah. If you do X, Y, Z, then I will keep my promise. Okay, we don't have something like that. And then, uh, for many, he is the one to be feared. And, and part of the purpose of, of also going through the repetition is to really, really uh, solidify these ayat in our minds. Okay, what else is said that he sends down ayat? Okay. And he is not obliging you, or he is obliging you to follow them, but he is not preventing you from misusing them. One of the fascinating things about Revelation, which are obvious, but I still find fascinating, is that Allah Ta'ala has designed the Revelations either to be a source of guidance or to be a source of misguidance. So we spoke in the previous course what is the key to misguidance? It's to be a fossic. It's misconduct is the key to misguidance. Allah Ta'ala does not let anyone astray except for the fossicun. And then here, uh, what is a manifestation of the misguidance is that if I am a scholar, a preacher, a teacher, a person of some authority, if I am selling off the ayat for my own personal gain, good. Uh, and then think about what's happening in terms of community dynamics. I'm leading a whole population astray. 
And so it's as though we have a fourth possible key to misguidance. The first, if you remember the first three, one was to break your pact with Allah after having confirmed it. The second one was to split what Allah has ordered to be joined. And the third one is to make mischief in the world. A possible third key, a fourth key to misguidance is when the people you are entrusting are misguiding you. Okay. That I find to be very frightening. In about 160 ayahs, we will have people who are going to complain to Allah, please send those people to hell, give them double punishment for leading us astray. And it will, not, uh, their punishment will not be lightened, nor will mine. Okay. <clears throat> and so once again, Allah Ta'ala has designed the truth so that it could be hidden. But he has also designed the truth as we see later on in the Quran. It's either Ayah 51 or Ayah 81 in Surah Al-Isra. No, I think it's Ayah 81. Yeah. وَقُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقُّ وَزَحَقَ الْبَاطِلِ so this is what the Prophet, peace be upon him, was saying as he is entering either the Kaaba or he's entering Mecca or he's entering the Haram. He's saying truth is here, falsehood has vanished. Indeed, falsehood is a vanishing thing. So the default of truth is that, or the default of falsehood is that it cannot sustain itself. You have to keep trying to sustain it. Whereas the default of truth is that it does sustain itself but it is something that can be hidden. Allah Ta'ala has allowed it to be hidden. So, which continues the point of, of the fact that um, Allah Ta'ala has, uh, he, he will allow the Quran to be used for guidance as well as misguidance. Okay, <clears throat> and then he is giving instructions. Allah Ta'ala also calls you out. And so we know many points in the Quran where he is pointing to the absurdity of people's behaviors. So in Surah Al-Najm, this is uh, uh, Surah 50, uh, 53 or 54, I think it's 53. Yeah, anyway, anyway. So, so he is making the point that the Quraysh assigned daughters to God, even though they themselves would hate to have daughters. And that doesn't make any sense. This is the supreme being, and now you're assigning daughters to him, even though you would hate to have daughters. Yeah. And so, seek help in sabr and salah. Uh, sabr and salah are tools through which you get closer to Allah. So it's like we're saying, seek help to Allah from Allah. But the machines or the tools through which to, to seek his help are through sabr and salah. These are some of the mechanisms that he has uh, provided. And what else is taking place? You and I are destined to meet him. And the goal is to want to meet him. Make that, if it's not already there, make that part of your consciousness, that you are seeking to meet him. And in one of those surahs in the 30s, and I forgot which one it is already, subhanAllah, that uh, I think it's Surah Al-Ankabut, where there are those people who are running away from Allah and then those people who are striving to be able to meet him. And think about that even from the perspective of pleasure, that that is the highest pleasure a person can achieve in their whole existence is the meeting with Allah. And we will also be returned to him. So he was our source, and then we're also going to go back to him. We've also spo already spoken about him giving favors, as he's reminding us of favors. 
And he also preser pre uh, prefers some over others. All of us witness this in the sense that Allah Ta'ala gives dunya more to some people more than others. All of us in this room have different amounts of wealth. And whether or not we would consider that to be a favor would more relate to how we respond to the wealth. But what's harder to, to, to digest for a lot of people is that he also gives different people different amounts of iman. And a way to understand that is that you have person one who was born into a family where everyone is upright, everyone in the town is upright, everyone is surrendering to Allah. By default, this person is probably going to go in that direction as well. You have another person who's the opposite. Everyone is corrupt uh, in their family around them. More than likely, this other person is going to be corrupt. We have exceptions, of course, the son of Noah, peace be upon him, and, the, and Ibrahim, alayhi salam. But the point is that he, his bounty he gives to whomever he wills. The more I can internalize that, the more that's going to cure my jealousy. Okay. That he gives of his bounty to whomever he wants uh, in all of creation. And part of his promise is that if he is favoring someone over me, it is not diminishing what he's given me. That what he's given me is not dependent upon what he is giving to, to other people. Then, of course, we are going to face Allah again on the Day of Judgment. And all those things that can benefit us in dunya, none of those things are going to help us potentially in akhirah. And we did speak about how a way to read the Quran is that there's always ellipses, there's always blank lines. And so it would actually be saying, okay, fear a day or guard yourself regarding a day where no soul will suffice for another one except as Allah wills nor will intercession be accepted from him except as he allows, nor will compensation be taken except as he allows, nor will they be aided except as he allows. But the key point being that he does allow shifa'a, right? He does allow shifa'a in terms of, of different types of intercession. But the point is that the Day of Judgment is absolutely unavoidable. Okay. <clears throat> Then there will be times where Allah Ta'ala is going to liberate us from various oppressors. The hard part of this, this relates to the issue of dua, is we made the point in the previous course that when I make a dua to Allah, I should have the conviction that it's been answered. At the very least, the prayer of my heart. But the manifestation of it will either be, like we said back then, that he's giving exactly what my tongue is asking, or instead of that, he's going to remove a burden, or instead of that, he's going to give me something in akhirah. But the hard part when you're making dua is when will I see the manifestation of it? It's possible that the children of Israel had been praying for liberation from the Pharaoh for a hundred years. I don't know how long they were enslaved maybe for, for a thousand years. But then finally it came. My favorite example of this comes about 80 ayahs from now, which I think we've talked about, where Ibrahim alayhi salam is building the Kaaba, and then he is praying to Allah for, to, for Allah to raise a messenger here. And then it takes some 3,000 years for that dua to manifest with the Prophet, peace be upon him, as though it took 3,000 years to make the world ready for the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Nevertheless, Allah also allows us to be hit with the worst torment. 
that he permits that to happen to us. He is not making any sort of promise to us that dunya is going to be anywhere close to paradise. Rather, paradise will be completely unimaginable compared to dunya. But these are all tests. And then we spoke about miracles. He may give us miracles in the course of our lives. And we looked at different ways to, to, to imagine uh, uh, or to try to make sense of what a miracle is, including the timing of things, including, you know, a, you know uh, I think in Dr. Mahan's case, the mother, his mother sensing something at exactly a particular time. Could be coincidence, but I take all these things as real. <clears throat> and then what does Allah also do? He does provide us with guidance. And where is that? Oh yeah, right here. He does provide us with guidance and a function for him providing us whatever he's providing us with, whether it's forgiveness or guidance and such, is for us to become grateful. Okay, sometimes, however, the process of getting forgiveness is certain steps we need to go through. At the time of Musa they had to go through this process of executing X number of people. For you and I, the basic process is to speak it, to make the request for forgiveness, and then to test if it's sincere. You know, if I pass that, if I can say yes to those three part, uh, the three-part test, do I stop, do I regard it as wrong, and do I hate to go back to it? If I can't say yes to all those, I still make the request for forgiveness. Inshallah, I'm forgiven. So one thing that's looked at is a shift from the pre-Muhammad era, peace be upon him, to the Muhammad era. And Isa alayhi salam is sort of in, in the transition period. Is that how did people get forgiveness? They had to go through these intense processes, including you know what we would call in our language ritual sacrifices. We do have a little bit of ritual sacrifice, whether we're speaking about what we do at the Hajj or at an Apika, but our all of that has shifted in our era to statements that we must articulate for for forgiveness. And even the du'as that we don't realize might be du'as can get answered. So we're cautious about the things we say because it may turn into a du'a. Allah may accept it as a du'a. So if you're cursing somebody out, if you're wishing something wrong to someone, that he may accept that as a du'a. They say, we're not going to believe in you until we see Allah, and then bam, they get hit with a, a lightning bolt. But even then, there is space for redemption. Our rizq may not seem as overtly as miraculous as what the children of Israel received, but it is written for us. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> about a hundred ayahs from here, we would get into the story of, of Hajar alayhi salam. And her story of Hurris is fascinating because Ibrahim alayhi salam leaves her there. Baby is running out of milk. Baby is crying and screaming. And you and I know she climbs up back and forth looking for her sustenance, but she knows the sustenance is there. She has to find it. And that is also how our dunya is designed. My sustenance is there. I have to find it. If she only sat there making dua to Allah, holding her baby, chances are she would not have found her sustenance. Because what happens is when she's running back and forth that her baby is scratching the ground and then it unleashes Zumzum where she was sitting. 
and so her sustenance was literally right under her feet. In the case of Bani Israel, this was overt. They didn't even have to go look. It came to them. But for us, you and I have to go look for it. And I always make reference to that teaching in our tradition of Isa alayhi salam, where he's saying, look at all these people who are working so hard for dunya, even though it is provided for them, and they're not working hard for their akhirah, which is something they have to earn. And another huge point, if I'm doing wrong, I am the victim of my wrong. I'm definitely not harming Allah. They did not hurt us. They did not oppress us. But they're the ones who have oppressed themselves. So whenever I do wrong, I am the victim of my own oppression. And then... <clears throat> Allah Ta'ala gives us instructions, and our job is to follow the instructions as simply as possible. One of the worst types of re rebellion is that I do the opposite of what Allah is asking me to. So even try metaphorically to think of someone who goes all the way on Hajj, and then they're praying, but they're praying with their back to the Kaaba. Okay. That's the type of rebellion that some, you know, that in essence some people do. Eat from the city, eat and drink whatever you want, uh, and but just enter prostratingly and then say such and such, make such and such a request. I mean, it could be, now I was going to give a suggestion, but that doesn't actually work. And then we said those who changed what we statement other than it was said to them, the result is that they were given a scourge from the sky. Now, will you and I, through brazen misbehavior, be given something like this? We do have teachings from the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he says something like, you know, when you have widespread zina taking place, then diseases are going to hit you that you can't find a cure for. Whether or not that applies to COVID-19, Allah knows best, but the point is that is a consequence, that there are some consequences to our dunyawi misbehavior, some dunya consequences to our dunyawi misbehaviors that may not be as simple as, you know, like we might speak of STDs. I don't think he's limiting it to what we would speak of as STDs. Okay. <clears throat> then what else do we have? This is something that I don't remember if I mentioned last time. This is not so much about Allah. Is that birds of a feather flock together. So one of the fascinating things about Hajj is that on the one hand, you know, we praise Hajj in the sense that everyone is equalized and it's all one ummah, we're all dressed the same way and such. But because of language, we still go with our own groups. You know, Americans go here, Europeans go here, Pakistanis go here, Sub-Saharan Africans go here, North Africans go there, so forth and so on. And so we do still flock together naturally. But even consider the water that I'm being provided is being uh, provided to me as a rizq. From Allah, whether we're speaking about Zamzam or the water that I'll be drinking, inshallah, in a couple of hours uh, for uh, for iftar. Look at that also as the provision of Allah, rizq Allah, mil rizqillah, that drink from the rizq of Allah. Okay, <clears throat> now it is not a problem inherently for me to get bored with what Allah is providing for me. That's not where the problem is. The problem is that if I become ungrateful about it, okay? 
Because again, I think any one of us, if we were given the most luxurious meal that we could imagine, but yet given it every single day, we're probably going to reach a point of getting bored. But the problem is if I become ungrateful about it and I start making other demands, as opposed to asking, Ya Allah, you know, thank you for this. And I fear that I'm getting bored. Please give me something else. This is something I always used to wrestle with about, about the day of judgment or about, about paradise. So paradise is eternal. And it seems naturally that we are going to get bored in paradise. And two answers to that. One is that paradise also operates in days. And literally each day is going to surpass the previous day in awesomeness. So you're not going to be able to get bored. And then, you know, my own, my own theory is that among the things that will get purified out of us when we are bathing, inshallah, in the kawthar of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is the boredom gene might also get uh, washed out of us. Allah knows best. Okay. And what else do we also see? That Allah Ta'ala does have anger. Okay. Even though it's spoken about so rarely in the Quran, it is there. How does Allah's anger compare to human anger? Don't know. Except that if we look at it uh, from, from a sense of righteous or appropriate anger, right? There's those, those times I'm getting angry where it's just totally unfair of me to be getting angry. And then those times I'm getting angry where it's justified as the process or as a, as a response. One of the risks that we often fall into is that we turn Allah himself into a, a robot. That, okay, if this is happening than such and such. Meaning there are some promises that Allah Ta'ala makes that we hold them to. Uh, who is that? I think it's Espinoza. No, not Espinoza. Spinoza, the, the, the Jewish philosopher who spoke of that as limits of God. We don't look at that as limits of God. That Allah Ta'ala makes a promise and then that's sort of a, a commitment he's made, but he doesn't have to. Okay, and then once again, how does Allah Ta'ala speak to us? He speaks to us through signs, through ayat. And you've heard from me many times that the entire ethos of the world around us is that everything is ayat of Allah doing what? Saying, look at me and appreciate my creator. Look at my wonder and thus appreciate the wonder of my creator. And so Allah Ta'ala is always speaking to us in ayat, whether it's by way of the Quran or whether it's by way of our experiences in life. Whether I see those things is a different issue, but they're still there. And then, of course, we have reward from Allah that is earned um, or potentially earned. And then <clears throat> we've already spoken about, about commitments and such. We also spoke about Allah as a provider. And it's that he gives us opportunity after to, opportunity after opportunity to come closer to him. Yet some people will continue to turn away. And once again, the Rahmah of Allah, one of the ways the Rahmah of Allah manifests is that if I do wrong and I don't start going astray because of that wrong, that's literally the Rahmah of Allah upon me. Because the second I've done wrong, I've stepped off the right, the right path, the straight path. But it's Allah Ta'ala that keeps me on the right path, even if I didn't ask for forgiveness. That is one of the mercies of Allah. That's how vulnerable I am. To, to, to Allah. Okay. And then once again, we've already spoken about the possibility of dunyawi consequences for my, my, my misbehavior. 
But for me, as a person of taqwa or aspiring to have taqwa, he does give me lessons from the previous generations. And then here, reason and revelation. Reason and revelation. We didn't talk, I, I mentioned we were going to talk about this, but, but um, I guess I got sidetracked. One point to think about these instructions right here, if you contrast the Sharia of Musa salam with the Sharia of Muhammad, peace be upon him, except for acts of worship, our Sharia makes sense. Okay. Here's the rules, here's the prescriptions of what you should do when you're giving a loan. Why? Because it'll decrease doubt, it'll be more fair. Here's the prescriptions of what you should do for, for major crimes like, like murder and such. Why? Because this is a key to sustaining life, so forth and so on. The Sharia of Musa, however, is a lot like what we see in the story. It's do this and do this and do this. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala has commanded it. The only aspect in our Sharia that is like that are acts of worship. Why do we do this? Because Allah commanded it. Why do we do five prayers, two sajjahs, ishraka? Why? Because Allah has commanded it. But most of the rest of the Sharia is very rational. Much of the Sharia of, of Musa salam, from our lens is not at all rational. And then uh, we also touched upon some, some other subtle points about Sharia. So when we're going through the story of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, the origins, we said the first lesson in Sharia is that Allah knows all. And then he gives us some obligations as illustrated in the Sajda. And he gives us some limitations as illustrated with the story of the tree. And then fourth, that he also gives us the path to redemption. You know, guidance and redemption. And here we also have four. One is that Allah Ta'ala gives us commands that are not arbitrary. Okay. In this case, it's a slaughter of cow. And another philosophy of Sharia is that you're, you're aiming towards the middle way of things. And another aspect of Sharia is you're beautifying things. And then another aspect of Sharia is that you're putting things in their proper place. You're giving things their proper role. So these are also elements in the formation of, of Sharia. And so, and then this also applies in matters of crime and punishment. We also have, have our own prescriptions and such. And then finishing off this subsection, like we said, that ultimately everything is miraculous. Some things follow an identifiable pattern. So we would not use the term miracle. And those things will either lead me closer to Allah or they will be an excuse for me to turn away from Allah. But even if I've turned far away from Allah, I still have the hope for redemption, inshallah. And so that is a summary of, of this subsection. The next subsection, starting from IS-75, although we've been introduced to it here, uh, would be causes and manifestations of rejection. That would be the next course. Uh, let me open up the floor now for, for questions. Uh, and feel free for anyone who wants to jump in. Let me see. Uh, is it not more like First a question of gratitude? How do we raise hands over here? Uh, oh, okay. How do you raise hands? Let's see. 
if you uh, my school teacher would be very disappointed in my in my conduct the way I've been participating in this. Excellent. Hey, uh, can you can you teach us how to raise hands? Yes. Yeah, so uh, on the top right corner, uh, I don't know uh, if you guys see three dots and it's, there's more. Okay. So, so everyone, if you, for those who don't know how to raise your hands, look at your specific rectangle where you're located in, in, on the screen. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, across the top, it says, you know, uh, and the top left-hand uh, corner, there's a, a red button leave. Obviously don't click that one, but the top right one, uh, there's three dots and it says, it says more. And if you click that, uh, you know, uh, you can see, buttons referring to chat meeting settings minimize meeting and and whatnot and in that menu it should say raise hand let me know if, if anyone can. uh uh-huh. i see yeah. that it says start video mute my audio doesn't say anything else edit profile picture show non-video participants yeah. slide self view yeah it's uh on the mac version does not have a hug the, the windows version does have oh windows, windows. interesting okay Maybe the conclusion here is to go with Apple, I guess. <laughs> uh, let's see. So. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not familiar with the Windows version, I guess. Okay, so the other instruction we're saying is click participants on the bottom of their screen, and there's a button to raise your hand. No. On the Mac does not have that feature. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, he's right, Sammy. Thank you. I see. It. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, so it now, works. now, all of you who are raising your hands, I will assume you're raising because you have questions. So we'll start with. Um, so let's see. Well, Musab just lowered his hand. Who still has a hand raised? Ah, uh -huh, you still have your hand raised. Yes. Um, you know, I guess uh, the common theme here for you know a lot of the like diseases uh, you know uh, you know of the heart especially discussed with the story of the children of israel is to just recognize the like you know mercy you know around you that mental shift and you know it like like it almost seems too simple of a solution and i sometimes fall prey to think i'm not doing enough because you know, the 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 solution seems too simple. I don't know if that's just my well, way of like. I think that's fair. And some of it actually is that simple, at least conceptually. Um, if we think of those five tests, the first one that I would always list is, or I would often list is obedience. And so the long-term goal is to keep increasing in obedience. And that can inshallah facilitate some of these other things, but uh, even gratitude, it's one thing to, for me to feel like, yes, I'm grateful. Like, I believe, I feel like me speaking about myself, I feel that I'm grateful. But I also have a lot more space through which to become even more grateful. And so uh, I hear what you're saying. Uh, um, and so some of the deception is that if we feel we've already reached 100%, as opposed to already uh, just being on a passing grade. Let me know if that makes sense or not it does it does yeah inshallah. other questions no other no one else has your hands raised let's go to the chat boss raised your hand 
Assalamu alaikum. Just going back to the ayah 61. Um, so basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they earned the, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's ghadab was on them. Uh, because not not just for the that they asked for that food, but rather it explains that because of what they have been doing. So that was maybe a part of it, yeah. but, but basically, I guess, uh, what all the things that they have been doing, that they've been uh, killing the prophets and neglecting all the commands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't seem like they're being, uh, it's like they're seeking their own humiliation uh, by the food choice that they're making. And that's illustrating how they've sort of lost their way or completely lost their way. Uh, but the reason that they've gotten, you know, stamped with humiliation, what is causing it is that they rejected the signs of Allah, killed prophets. And what caused that? Um, disobedience. And so just like the point with, with Ahant, the one key is to increase in my obedience. So. Darkazi. So, uh, going back to your comment, Omar, from yesterday or day before yesterday, where you said, if you think you're being addressed in these verses, Ayas, then it's for you. If not, then you read it as uh, uh, a story that happened to a people before you. Or is that uh, as though Allah Ta'ala is speaking out loud to them, so indirectly to me, like, hey, pay attention. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, uh, in the story of Bani Israel uh, um, in, the, uh, in the Quran, uh, it's very interesting. There's all basically a personal characteristic that an individual should inculcate in himself. Gratitude versus ingratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, an upright character versus deviousness and so forth. But uh, even uh, over here, there's no mention of... Uh, uh, the dealing of as a nation with another nation, for example, like as uh, uh, and uh, with, with the Muslims, it says if you're uh, being, which could be treated as an individual, also like if you if somebody approaches with you evil, uh, uh, do something better. Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts as to what was the moral condition of Bani Israel that bad that? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically not even taking them to the level of to deal with them as a, uh, to a stage where they could deal with other people as nation. Well, I mean, we will see, I think, uh, some of that. I'm looking for the specific ayat. When we get into the story of, you know, uh, they're asking for a king, you know, to lead them. And then Talut is selected as the king and they're saying, you know, how can this guy lead us? He's, he's not as good as us. And, and so I do think uh, we're going to see at least some of what you're talking about. I'm, I forgot exactly where it is in the surah, but it's give or take about 100 ayahs from now. Uh, so that will also be taking place. Uh, but I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I mean, uh, even if you, uh, it is later on in those bakara, but even there when I was uh, reading those ayahs, uh, it strikes me that as opposed to when the Muslims are addressed vis-a-vis the kuffar of Mecca, the kuffar of Mecca clearly addressed to as kafirin or uh-huh. uh, kuffar, uh, no such de- depiction or be- exists. For example, when they're when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is talking about Jalut, 
Or, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, your 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 thoughts are as good as mine on this one. Mahan. Um, yeah, so I don't know if I'll be able to frame this um, appropriately, but um, you know, this is all addressing Bani Israel as a collective, and I'm reminded of you know recently the mayor of New York. He said something like the Jews. Uh, because they were, uh, you know, a group of them were violating the social distancing requirements. And mm. the whole community came out and said, you know, who are the Jews? And you can't speak of it as, as a collective. And we live in now this world where it's inter intersectional uh, frameworks, you know, or inter an intersectional lens really guides our identity. So you're Jewish, but you're American, you're a New Yorker, you're you know, so identities aren't necessarily as closely associated with one label like Jews. And then the eschatological traditions where, you know, break the cross and kill the swine and how they tend to be associated with whole communities. Those, especially these days, I mean, they're really problematic for like interfaith kind of conversations, they're even cringeworthy. So how do we deal with our traditions now that we look at identity so differently? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think um, we definitely have passages that either we struggle with in terms of applying ourselves or struggle with in terms of trying to explain other people, right? And we have moments in our story uh, as well. And so a common one that comes up is, is the marriage to Aisha, radiallahu anha, right? You know, or Banu Koreda and such. And I mean, so from just a general perspective, we, we address them honestly. You know, uh, uh, interfaith dialogue, a lot of times you take a political route. Like I actually uh, was in an interfaith dialogue where uh, uh, the topic was difficult passages. And so I went to the Ayato Saif, you know, the, the, the passages on, on jihad, fighting, all that stuff. And the moderator complained that I was the only person out of me, the Jewish guy, the Christian guy, who was actually addressing, you know, some, some tough passages. The other people didn't even come close. And it was almost as though they didn't even understand what, what the question was. And so that's the political side of things on how to address those matters, which um, has its role. And there it's almost like you just have to be very, very obsequious. You have to be very brown-nosing. But in terms of an honest discourse, I think we address those honestly. This is in our, our source. This is in our primary sources. You know, there, there's a Jew behind me, kill it. Um, and, and, and we can, in a non-apologetic way, say that, well, number one, you know, uh, we don't know how authentic these narrations are, but they may be, meaning, and, and what that means in practice, we don't know, but we can say that this is not a source, a source material for the Sharia, that, you know, there's, I don't know of anyone anywhere in the history of, 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 of fiqh who is saying that because of these ayahs about end times, we have to now go pursue and, and slaughter all these people. Um, but, I mean, I think the, the only real engagement for something like this is just an honest engagement. And that can include potentially, this is something I also wrestle with. Like, for example, 
you know, the, the marriage to Aisha, uh, did he marry her at that young age? Possibly. Uh, we do see that of all the things he's getting criticized for by the Kofar, he's not getting criticized for that. Um, we don't see it becoming a, tent, a tenet of Sharia that, you know, people should be marrying, you know, young daughters. But uh, would I be comfortable in my daughter getting married at age 6, 10, 14? No. And, and so I think, uh, I don't think it's a problem to just you know, addressed uh, with as much honesty and integrity as possible. And people may accept our answers and they may not, you know. I think one thing we've learned from, from all the speeches that we've given since 9-11, including all the speeches I've given since 9-11, is that there are certain crowds of people, there's nothing you can say that's going to please them, you know, so why try? You know. What do you think? Well, so, you know, one is the political question of pleasing them, but one is also the ethical self-reflection. Can I really consider some of these things as plausible? With the young marriage to Aisha, I mean, just, I think it's not exactly the same because you can still say that the prophet was, you know, doing what was appropriate in his context. And that raises sure. another theological question. Okay. But, but for like the, um, you know, there's a stone here, um, especially, you know, if it's not authentic, I think, just has to be categorically rejected or mm -hmm. sidelined because otherwise it still shapes a kind of psychology, even though it's not directing the Sharia and mm -hmm. that can play into the way we, you know, imagine broader narratives of intercommunal relation. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking out loud as well. Um, that's it. Not, not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that fits into some of uh, what you're saying fits into some of the points I was making all the way at the very beginning of the course when I was suggesting, okay, Bani Israel are not the same as Jews. Bani Israel are not innately wicked. I think that is similar, yeah. I think, is to what yeah, you're that, talking that, about. That's a key point. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, Let's see. Who else has raised your hand? Noor. I, um, I had a question regarding um, the mercy of Allah that we talked about. So we mentioned how if a person does wrong and they go on the wrong path, um, or they don't go on the wrong path, it's the mercy of Allah that's saving them. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering, do those individuals have like certain characteristics that make them earn more rahmah, or is it more so of just that like Allah gives... Um, different levels of Iman to whoever he wills and, and that so, sort of thing. So I think the two do, uh, can both be possible. I don't think they're a contradiction. So <clears throat> if I do wrong, you know, and I don't see forgiveness for it, let's say I don't see forgiveness because I'm just so full of anger and I do wrong and then I might even gloat in my, my anger, you know, like that feeling of just being permeated with fire you know, and the, some people have when they're angry. Um, and then I continue to do other good things and turning to Allah and everything. Uh, uh, that would be the indulgence of Rahmah that Allah Ta'ala has given me. Uh, that potentially for the next person um, doesn't happen. Um, now, is there something else to it? It could be that uh, Allah Ta'ala is also answering the prayers that someone else is making for me like my mother's prayers uh, or, 
you know, even at my child's prayers for me. And, and in a way, from the free will predestination perspective, we can say that Allah Ta'ala is making that person make a prayer for me. So, so yeah, when we get into that realm, I mean, I think the easiest way is to just say that, you know, Alhamdulillah, you know, there's so many times where I could have gone astray and Allah Ta'ala didn't let me. Make sense? Yes, thank you. Yeah, definitely, inshallah. All right, who else we got? Uh, Dr. Kazi. Uh, taking Mahan's point, uh, the discussion further, uh, I personally think that's a very slippery slope because the uh, the, I, the marriage of the Rasul to Aisha Radhi did not really become problematic social, uh, socially until the 18th, until the 19th and 20th centuries. Before that, the marriage of Rasul to Zainab was the problematic one. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, with that uh, in view, I mean, are we going to be uh, opening ourselves to be driven by whichever way the, uh, the strong wind is blowing in terms of culture and cultural and societal acceptability? And if so, how long before we start uh, talking about the prescription of homosexuality and so forth and Islam and uh, making some sort of a similar bland remark, well, I don't uh, agree with uh, the prescription of homosexuality, but you know, uh, and so forth. Well, um, it's a very I, slippery slope of hate. You uh, lost me with the hate thing. Okay, so. I said it's a very slippery I think you're saying it's a very slippery slope. Okay, so, so in an ideal sense, we would be defining our deen regardless of what the critics have to say. Okay. But we see in the Quran itself that Allah Ta'ala is responding to critics, right? You know, like Ayah 26, it is not, Allah Ta'ala is not shy. In Allah la yastahi, mathalam, you know, so forth and so on. That Allah Ta'ala is not too shy to give, to hit people with the examples of something like a bug and such. So in the Quran itself, Allah Ta'ala is responding to critics. And a lesson we can potentially take from that as a sunnah is that, yeah, sometimes you do need to respond to critics, uh, not necessarily for the integrity of your deen, but because people might need it for the integrity of their own faith. Meaning, I think it is fair to say that the, the marriage to Aisha and some of the other events are challenges to faith for 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 many people and thus somebody needs to come along and to try to figure out okay this is a challenge to your faith let's figure out what is an answer that has integrity i don't think that's the same as as defining our entire dean according to what other people are saying i do think that is a big part of american islam that uh, a big part of american islam is literally defined according to to what various critics do say um but uh, for the common believer, uh, I don't. Uh, I'm not. I don't think that is necessarily the case. But think about other things that are in the air. The question of evolution is something that affects people's faith. Uh, if they're not getting a satisfactory answer, by satisfactory answer, I don't mean they're getting the answer that they want. I'm getting that they get an answer that they're satisfied with. And so I don't think. Uh, 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 I, uh, uh, I think that, uh, like, even when I'm, you know, uh, my default used to be to read the story of the children of Israel as these wicked people. 
And as I'd go through the story again and again and again, and I found myself thinking, okay, this sounds like an, a normal population, you know? And then looking at, you know, all of our source material on Jews and such, then, you know, then that raised other questions for me as well. Uh, independent, I believe, of what other people would have to say, you know? So, so, I mean, it could be a slippery slope, but I don't think it necessarily automatically is. Uh, Basser. Um, so I was, uh, listening to, uh, I think Dr. Uh, Brown, Dr. AC Brown. Oh, he Jonathan? Addressing, yeah. He was addressing, uh, this issue of Hadad Aisha, uh, uh, and he mentioned that, uh, uh, that. Uh, in the in a desert uh, climate and uh, where you where you know you don't do much farming uh, and your survival is on on very different uh, things than you know in a city life uh, at that time and then when you know your own survival is not uh, you know uh, in terms of our age uh, like people die early on in their life. Uh, I forgot whether he said women die early or men die early. So those are some of the factors uh, that, you know, like because they're not in front of us, uh, for example, and those are, that's when it becomes problematic. Uh, so I think it would be the same if, uh, if we lived in Antarctica or somewhere where there was no sun there was no flower and we would keep reading the ayahs else one of the other created, uh, you know, he created the sun and the stars and we're ne never able to see them. Then we say, you know, what's, what's really great about that. So sometimes where we are living, that society has changed so much that it has become the default right. And it's hard for us to think that uh, there could be other conditions that can exist. For example, like for Americans, you know, like there are certain there are certain uh, things that we we think that you know can never happen, but if you go to Pakistan or India or you know even South America, you know how 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 uh, children's work and stuff like that, you know that's just a norm. So uh, I think a lot for a lot of us we have to break that barrier that sometimes even when we are kind of uh, interpreting those ayahs to satisfy ourselves, it might not be wrong as long as we keep it to ourselves to satisfy it, because we might not be understanding the condition in which we're living to the fullest extent either. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, there's a bunch of, uh, of chat messages that, uh, that we haven't got to. Uh, Musab, is it not more like a test of gratitude colored as a favor? I think you're talking about the favors the children of Israel received, and those would also at the same time be tests of gratitude, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, Dr. Malahat, I'm having trouble reading what you posted. If you could, uh, the font is so tiny, I can't, I can't see if it's even Urdu or Arabic. Um, so I've always wondered why the Bani Israel refer to Allah as your God instead of our God to Hazrat Musa. That uh, I'm not sure. I think, you know, and I mean, at first I used to think this was a sign of their rebellion, but I also think it might be just the way that they were taught to to speak assuming that Musa al-Islam's prayers were were more likely to be answered but I don't have a, a satisfactory or a complete answer on that point 
this is a wistful statement, not a factual one. We all wish we could be with the Rasul. Okay, I mean, I don't know what yeah, I so there. What I type in Urdu is that, you know, the one moment of the companion of Prophet standing with him is much better than our whole life. This is the saying of Imam Abu Hanifa. It's kind of related to the what you just said yesterday, your graph, you know. I was thinking about your graph. Okay, okay, sure. Uh, let's see. Sami, oh no. Uh, Sadia, I think we won't be bored in paradise because we won't be the same species anymore. We all have different needs and expectations too, in addition to how every day will be better by virtue of being in paradise. Inshallah. You know, maybe everyone's paradise is to be Pakistani. Okay, anyway, so let's see, Ramia, if we may have discussed this and I have just not internalized it enough to remember, but how do we define arrogance? The short version of arrogance, gibber, is an inflated sense of your own worth or your own value. So gibber has the same word uh, that akbar, like we say, Allahu Akbar, Allah is greatest. And so gibber would, or arrogance would be something like hubris. And yeah, let me know if that helps. Uh, let's see, Sadia, I would like to go back to a question I asked in one of the earlier questions, classes. Why make a humans go through all of this? Why send us on earth? Why set up the dunya and day of judgment? Why did he have the need to do this? Uh, he did not have the need to do this. Uh, when he doesn't have any, oh, you already said that he doesn't have any need. I know it is a hard question and we may never know. Well, no, the, the answer to the question is because that's what his will is. And but just would like to know how you would suggest to look at it intellectually and make peace with it while we do accept it as part of our obedience that we would not know. The, the, really, the actual answer, because it is something done without need and because Allah Ta'ala is not a human, then the best answer we can give is this is what his will is and thus we surrender. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you can get a better answer to that. There are, you know, like in different schools, you know, more like the, the, the side schools, so to speak, not the mainstream schools, where people say things like, you know, I was a hidden jewel and I wanted to be seen. Um, and teachers like, teachers like that, which I think, you know, are nice. But the real issue is it was in his will to, to, for this to happen, for us to go through this whole process and thus we surrender. You know, it would be an exaggeration to say we're like the, the mice in the maze. Um, and then we have to, we've been, you know, we have to go figure out what the end of the maze is. That is a higher level of, of than what we are to Allah Ta'ala. It's literally just, this is his will. And I don't know that there would be a more satisfactory answer than that either. Okay, Ramya, how do we understand what, what our value, what our value, I think, uh, what our value is uh, in the context of having an inflated sense of what? So what is our default value? Okay, good question. So one of the attributes of Allah is he is the appraiser and he is also the one who elevates and he also is the one that debases. And so our value is exactly what Allah Ta'ala deems our value to be. So he says, for example, that he has honored the children of Adam, peace be upon him. And of the ways we've been honored is just by existence itself. And a way to fulfill that honor is by obedience. Meaning, when I am not obeying Allah, I am devaluing myself. And so it becomes sort of almost circular, uh, uh, a bit of it. But the core point being that my value is determined by Allah. It's not something we can give a measurement to as much as it then promotes certain types of behaviors that are worthy of my value. 
and avoiding certain types of behaviors that are beneath my value. Uh, I don't know if that helps at all, but let me know what you think. Any other questions about anything at all? No other questions? I feel like someone's typing something. I have a one question. Yeah. Then, you know, where is this question in Maha's mind came for the marriage of Hazrat Aisha? Oh, I'm the one who brought it up. He didn't bring it up. Huh? I brought it up. He didn't bring it up. Oh. Yeah. He's just got something against me. It's coming out. <laughs> no, no. I'm just, run, I'm, run for the hills. I'm just curious about it that, you know. Run for the hills. He's after you. I'm just trying to see the relevance of this Hazrat Aisha and the, the statement of the governor of New York against the Jews. No, 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 yeah, yeah. That's uh, that was me trying to trying to discuss Mahan's question. It was entirely me. Oh. Yeah. And then Mahan even said that that's not quite what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> I like how like that's been sitting in your has been sitting in your head for like ten minutes. Mahan, you are <laughs> come on, Malad, come on, don't go again. All right, uh, Ramya says you have a follow-up question. You don't know how to raise your hand. Do you know how to unmute yourself? I do know how to unmute myself. Okay, thanks. So something I struggle with is that I have um, like Muslim clients who come into my office and I am not sure, how, and they have, they cite challenges with self-esteem and mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to conceptualize that within, a, within an Islamic framework because a lot of the work that I do with other clients around like self-worth um, and sense of self is, is really from sort of a Western uh, lens. And so I don't know how to reconcile this within a more like Islamically integrated um, context. Oh, so just so everyone knows, uh, Ramya is a therapist. Um, uh, Ramya, how do you, in the Western context, uh, what do you do for someone? Or what do you say to someone, you know, who's coming in with self-esteem issues? Um, it gets, it's very kind of case specific, but I think that there is, there's sometimes a notion of like, in a like unapologetic self-love or like radical self-love, um, this kind of thing. And I find that M Muslims are often trying to toggle the lines of like having self-worth, but also humility in a way that maybe feels different with a client that's not Muslim. Yeah, I think, so So the first thought I'd have is that it, from a therapy perspective, if a person, even if they self-identify as Muslim, if they're not in sort of like an Islamic paradigm fully, then I don't know how beneficial it would be to, um, to speak through the lens of an Islamic paradigm. It's almost like, just like I said, it's case by case. I suspect most of the Muslim clients you have will have one foot in an Islamic paradigm and then one foot in you know the West and whatever else. And, and so if you were to say, well, Allah Ta'ala has determined that you are so valuable that you're more valuable than all of creation, uh, I don't know how many people that would actually work for. Because if they're coming in with self-esteem issues, it's probably coming related to the relationship with their parents and other life experiences. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I would say that I, I, I'm not thinking really in terms of clients who are um, like toggling their, their Muslim and American identities, because I think in that case, I only utilize Islam insofar that the other person brings it up as mm -hmm. part of the treatment. I'm talking in cases where like someone is bringing Islam as, as like a as like a protective factor, in which case, like, I don't really know what to do with that. Uh, but I think, I think that's like a helpful, like cognition to kind of embed 
um, in those situations. So thank mm -hmm. you. Any other last questions about anything at all? Okay, so I have to run to my next class. Uh, tomorrow, we're not going to have class. Uh, tomorrow, I'm just gonna take a day off for no particular reason, except that I want to take a day off. Uh, uh, Mahan is saying, can I put up a link to Sheikh Hamza's class on Gateway to God's book, Reflections on the Deep Structure? Go for it. Uh, in fact, you know, skipping my class, uh, tomorrow you all can do this. We will reconvene. In fact, you know what? I'm going to take two days off. Uh, we will reconvene, inshallah, on Tuesday. I also have to praise Sami, uh, who, aside from his wonderful expressions, he's the only person who's actually showing his face in, in this class. Try, try teaching a class when all you see are a bunch of squares. Oh, mashallah, mashallah, two, three, mashallah. Okay, maybe maybe I shouldn't see your faces. Anyway, kidding, kidding. Okay, so, so let's, oh, man. Let's reconvene, inshallah, on Tuesday. Uh, same time, same channel and everything. And I was also discussing the possibility, let me know if you'd be interested, of starting another class. I'm assuming most of you are going to be too busy for this. Uh, but another class when we're going through Rumi line by line. Different than Omid Safi's class. Omid Safi's class is, is I mean, he's way higher of a scholar of Rumi than, than, than anything I'm close to. Uh, if you can do his class, I would highly recommend it. But this is going through Fihi Ma Fihi line by line, which I think uh, many of you would find to be very beneficial. If this is something that interests you, um, um, email me and and then, then we'll see. To get through the whole book at my speed, I imagine it'll probably take about 100 sessions. And so we'd have to figure out long-term time slots and such. But the Quran class will continue, inshallah, at least through the end of Ramadan. And so uh, on Tuesday, inshallah, we will start with Ayah 75. And, and that section goes to about Ayah 123. And that's causes and manifestations of rejection, inshallah. Mm -hmm. So what we're also gonna see is Bani Israel, the core problem was lack of gratitude, but we're gonna see a whole bunch of misbehaviors um, that are manifestations of lack of gratitude. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell the word you all, inshallah. Wa akhirat a'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. So we'll see you all, inshallah, on Tuesday. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.